Today's Ringer NBA show is brought to you by the Google Assistant. With the Google Assistant, you can complete over a million actions on your phone, in your car, and around the house. One of my favorites is to get the latest sports info when I'm in the car and can't be messing around with my phone. With the Google Assistant, I can get the latest scores, team records, and schedules. Download the Google Assistant today. Today's show is also brought to you by The Dave Chang Show on the Ringer Podcast Network. Michelin star chef Dave Chang now has a podcast right here on the Ringer Podcast Network. Produced in partnership with Major Domo Media. Volume 1 of the pre-opening diaries went up yesterday, in which Dave sits down with our big boss, Bill Simmons, to talk about everything that led up to him deciding to move to L.A. It's a riveting conversation in which you get to hear one of the greatest chefs in the world share his thought process in opening a restaurant. So please go subscribe to The Dave Chang Show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, The Ringer NBA Show. Welcome to the Ringer NBA Show. I'm Kevin O'Connor, and as you can guess by our theme music, this is not draft class. As much as we love talking about the NBA draft, the playoffs are now intensifying, and we wanted to use this show to talk more about the action that's happening right now. Our plan is to go every other week with draft class, but expect to hear more NBA playoffs talk on a weekly basis. With that said, I am super excited for today's show. Calling in, as he does every Friday from Dallas, Texas, is fellow Ringer staff writer, Jonathan Charks. What's up, guys? I actually want to do some Avengers talk, but I guess we'll table that for now. I went and saw Infinity Wars last night. It was interesting. The reason why we can't talk Avengers is because we have a very, very, very special guest on today's show who is going to see Avengers immediately after we re- record the show. It's Ringer's stats wizard, Ringer editorial assistant, Zach Cram. Hello. I'm uh, showing up for the first time in the playoffs, kind of like Rajon Rondo. So I'm happy <laughs> to be here. Excited to have you today, Zach. Isaac, you'll be producing a binge mode Avengers next week, which Zach will be involved in. Yeah, it's going to be fun. I'm really excited for it. I watched it last night. I really don't want to say much because I don't want to spoil it for anybody who hasn't seen it yet. But Charks and I will be slacking each other through the whole show, just like not thinking about basketball, just talking Avengers. This is true. Is Thanos <laughs> a stretch five? Who can say? <laughs> <laughs> That's our producer, Isaac Lee, who produces every episode of the Ringer NBA show, as well as the aforementioned binge mode. And though this isn't draft class, we'll still be getting grades from Isaac at the end of the show. Anyway, the Bucks beat the Celtics 97-86 on Thursday to extend the series to seven games. I was watching the game with about 10 coworkers in a room we call the chapel at the Ringer. It's where we record most of our videos, and there's three TVs in there. Two of them were in the NFL draft. The third TV, the little small one, was on Bucks Celtics. The basketball took a backseat yesterday, but it didn't for us, and it certainly didn't for the Milwaukee Bucks. Uh, they played what I thought was probably their best overall game of the series. Jonathan, last night with 31 points, 14 rebounds, 4 assists. Giannis was certainly the big difference in the game, wasn't he? Yeah, he was incredible. If he gets that step-back jumper he got going, go- I mean, that's like unguardable. When he starts, like, takes two steps... I think he jumps like 10 feet back before he shoots it, too. It's, it's totally unguardable. Yeah, in looking forward to Game 7, uh, it's sort of a clash of two competing narratives. You have the Celtics at home, and home teams are 6-0 in the series so far. But the Bucks also have the best player in Giannis. And I was looking and found a study that Kevin Pelton from ESPN ran last season. And he found that when an underdog has the best player in a series— that team wins more often than its overall stats would suggest. And that applies to a whole series, not just Game 7, but I think that does apply here because if you think maybe the Celtics are a little bit better, the fact that the Bucks have the player who's the best bet to score 30 points in what will probably be a low-scoring Game 7 
might move them up and make it a, a coin flip toss-up. And the Bucks have learned how to maximize Giannis and Jonathan. I know this is something that will make you very excited um, because of your your uh, you, you love small ball. I always poke fun of you at that for that, but it's the truth. I mean, in this series, we've seen it. With Giannis and Thonmaker in the front court, yeah, the Bucks have outscored the Celtics by 8.2 points per 100 possessions. When it's Giannis and anyone else, like Jabari Parker or a, a non-big man, they're plus 5.4 points per 100 possessions. When it's Giannis and Tyler Zeller, they're getting outscored by 7 points per 100 possessions. So... The Bucks have really found a way to, A, maximize Giannis, but also open the floor for everybody else by going to small lineups that don't have John Henson on the floor, that don't have Tyler Zeller on the floor with Thon McCurr and Giannis Antetokounmpo. Yeah, the craziest stat for me, so game one of the series, Henson and Zeller played 41 minutes and Jet Terry played 18. Game six, Zeller played 11 minutes. Yeah. Like, that's like a 40, that's a massive swing of like, playing time, figuring out your team on the fly, and Thon Maker alive and playing basketball. Who would have thought? Yeah, Thon's been up and down this series, but uh, obviously, especially in the home games, uh, games three, four, and then last night, game six, he's been really terrific with his energy levels. Uh, still has some careless fouls. Um, he followed a Boston shooter last night taking a three. Um, worry about that a little bit uh, for him going on the road against Boston, but look, uh, for me, it seems that I think when when the Bucks are in transition, it's not even really transition offense. They are just creating opportunities with a spaced floor. Boston's getting back on defense, but Giannis is driving anyway. And uh, to me, like that was the big difference. Um, Giannis was just attacking regardless of what the defense looked like. Whereas in game one, when she- uh, rather uh, rather than game five, when Shemi Ojale was on him, he was hesitating because Ojale is a terrific defender. But uh, game six, Giannis attacked anyway. And I think ultimately it was may- maybe really just a mindset change for Giannis that was probably the difference, Zach. Yeah, I, I also think one fun wrinkle about this series, which Chark sort of hinted at, is that I don't think either coach has fully settled on his favorite five-man lineup yet. You have sort of the core three, maybe four players on each team, but then the fifth player has been sort of cycling in, whichever guy is the hot hand. It is, you know, heading into a Game 7 kind of rep- reminiscent of last year's playoffs when all of a sudden Kelly Olynyk just broke out in Game 7 against the Wizards. So I definitely think while the Bucks have Giannis as the focal point, and the Celtics have their core figures, it really opens up the possibility that Game 7 could feature someone we haven't talked about much, whether it's Terry Rozier at home or Marcus Smart playing defense or Jabari Parker breaking out all of a sudden. I, I think it opens up the possibility that we have the player at the end of a rotation making a big difference. Kevin, I'm curious, the Celtics guy, I see. I think that was the first time in game six they went to like Semi and Marcus Morris at the five to go against Giannis at the five. What do you think is like their best lineup for those lineups? Well, in game two, they went to Greg Monroe and they beat up the Bucks with Monroe. Uh, just totally exposed them using his size. He, he, he just completely exposed them. But in game six last night, Monroe yeah, was three in, minutes. Yeah, three, Monroe. three minutes. And it was the Bucks who ended up exposing him. They ran a lot of pick and rolls against Monroe. They got easy transition. Again, even if the Celtics were back, they pushed it anyway. Um, and, and Stevens quickly pulled Monroe uh, and it wasn't worth it. Boston last night, they doubled Giannis on the post on a couple of occasions. But one thing they didn't do was post up Al Horford in the final frame. They shot a lot of threes, especially early in the clock, or they Jalen Brown had a couple um 
threes that were kind of frustrating, I would assume, for Boston, where it felt like they should be attacking. And Al Horford had success earlier in the series posting up Giannis. So I think, you know, with Ojale and Mon- uh, Morris in the front court, sure, certainly when Horford's off, maybe that's something you would go to. But I think really... Horford is ultimately the key. You need to feed him mm. the ball in the post. He only had eight shots last night. That That's not enough, Jonathan. Yeah, you had a good article after game five. We were talking about Milwaukee, like just being drawn to Horford inside. Like, I feel like if you just test Milwaukee's discipline on defense, they're probably going to give us some open threes. If you just throw it in and just dare him to double, I'll probably he, do it. He's the best passer on the team. Al Horford is. He's one of the best passing big men in basketball. Yeah, that's what makes it so crazy. I remember watching that and being like, why are they doubling Horford to like leave guys wide open for three? And it's just like Milwaukee sometimes, especially in Boston on the road, I don't know if I trust a young team to play disciplined basketball. Yeah, and I think it involves a stress point for Milwaukee, which is that their best lineup is Giannis at the five. That probably can't hold up over a whole season, we know. I don't know if it can hold up over a whole series. And now it's just can it hold up over a whole game? And that's the big question. The more minutes that Milwaukee can leave Giannis with shooters around him, the better they'll be on offense. So it's a matter of Boston exploiting that matchup and making them bring in someone who can guard Horford in the post. See, to me, the, the thing is like, I would make Bledsoe and make Snell, make make, make Deladova, Snell, and Bledsoe. If they're going to be on the floor. I'm making those guys shoot threes because I don't trust them at all on the road. It feels like this series would probably be over if Eric Bledsoe cared, if, cared about doing two things. A, playing off all defense, <laughs> and B, not taking mid-range jumpers early in the yeah, shot Yeah, he's clock. been killing them. Yeah, he's he, been absolutely killing but, them. But they are getting contributions from a bunch of different guys, other guys. Malcolm Brogdon was really terrific last night. Five or five from seven from the floor. He rebounded, defended, um, made the right play as he always does. Uh, we talked about Thon McCurr earlier. Um, everybody up and down that roster. Jabari Parker really played hard on defense, which was encouraging. That was incredible. I saw him like stop somebody on a switch. I was like, oh my God, I don't think I ever saw it before. It, it, it was beautiful seeing Tony Snell actually finally hit two shots in the series. Um, that's what Milwaukee needs, especially on the road in Game 7 when they don't have that crazy loud crowd behind them, which was unbelievable um, in Game 6. Uh, they're going to need other guys to step up. You alluded to, alluded to it earlier, Zach. Who, who do you think that guy might be on either side uh, of um, for Boston or Milwaukee that could elevate their play to give them a serious victory? I think I'm interested in Terry Rozier for Boston, who in Game 1 almost won at the end if Chris Middleton hadn't made that 30-footer to send it to overtime. Last night, Rozier took 12 three-pointers. He made four, which is a decent percentage, but especially at home, I think all of Boston's young players have played better in Boston so far this series. And if Horford finds him on open passes or Jason Tatum or Jalen Brown drives and kicks, I think Rozier could be a difference maker for Boston. For Milwaukee, the rotation has definitely shortened, so that limits the potential pool period. And I almost think Milwaukee is in more trouble here because... I don't know who that guy is besides Giannis. They haven't really had people outside their core step up yet. And I don't know if they'll be able to tap into that vein in Game 7 on the road. Unless Giannis has his special, like LeBron Game 6 in Boston game, where he just drops 40-plus, nearly 50 points, which he's certainly capable of. Um, uh, I, 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 I do think Boston will double him, though, like they did in certain instances in Game 6, and that will force other guys to have to um, step up their game. This feels like, to me, like, 
Jabari Parker's do or die game in Milwaukee. Mm. I'm curious what you think he'll, will happen in this offseason, Kevin. Yeah. I mean, I like Jabari a lot still, even though he doesn't care about defense and he doesn't rebound and he's kind of like Carmelo Anthony Jr. in a way. I still think he, there's very few guys that are that big, that size, that can move as quickly as him and that can really score from anywhere on the court. Uh, I think he showed flashes over his entire career so far that's just been hampered by the two torn ACLs. That's the big concern for me, even more so than the defense, because Look, man, we've seen little spurts of it this this series, like Game 6. What Parker wants to defend, he can. It's no different than it was at Duke. I remember four years ago uh, when he was, you know, at Duke after a game at, Bo- at Boston College, I asked him, it was like, Jabari, you know, you know, defense is one of the things you're knocked for. Is that more of a thing where is it effort or is it like coaching in terms of positioning? And he's like, no, it's it's all effort. It's about me wanting to do it. It's about having the desire to do it. <laughs> and, and look, I mean, you don't get that honestly that often, do you? But it's yeah. the truth. He had the desire in game six. And if you get that from him in the playoffs, it raises the ceiling for the Milwaukee Bucks. That's an awesome quote. Because usually, usually guys are like, oh, you know, critics. Are, he's like, no, nah, I'm just lazy. I don't, I don't really care. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think the reason uh, I, you know, Kevin Pelton's stat aside, I'm still leaning slightly toward picking Boston in Game 7 is that very fact that Milwaukee— We all know Al Horford is actually the best player in the NBA. (laughs) (laughs) That Milwaukee is relying on unproven players like Jabari Parker. Mm -hmm. And I I think in a a road Game 7, you need the ability for one or two role players to step up, and I just don't know if I trust— the Bucks role players to be able to do that yet. Real quick, Zach, who wins? This, who wins Game Seven? Boston by five. Charks, who wins? I'm gonna pick Giannis. I'm not gonna pick. I'm just gonna say Giannis wins Game Seven. I'm going with Boston by two. Real close one. Let's move on. We have three Game Sixes happening on Friday. That's tonight. The series I'm most interested in tonight is LeBron James and the Cleveland Cavaliers in Game Six against the Pacers. Obviously, a must win for the Pacers. They're down three two after what was an outstanding. Game five, um, crazy at the end with the missed out-of-bounds call when it should have been Cleveland's ball, and then LeBron goaltending on the Oladipo layup. Um, but it doesn't matter. LeBron hit that absolutely ridiculous shot, which was appropriate considering the fact that he has just carried this Cavaliers roster the entire series. Zach, um, you have some numbers for us just to really show how much LeBron has made a difference compared to everybody else in the series. Yeah, I think we've sort of been chatting all along about how weak the supporting class is compared to what he's had in recent years, but the numbers are even more remarkable. Uh, In the series so far in five games, Kevin Love is the only Cavalier besides LeBron who's in double-digit scoring, and he's barely there. He's averaging only 11.8 points per game. Jeff Green has the most assists besides LeBron. That's brutal. And he's only at <laughs> 1.8, so basically they're not moving the ball at all unless LeBron is the one moving it, which is a problem because he also should be the one shooting it. Jose Calderon is shooting 31% on threes. J.R. Smith is at 28%. Jeff Green is at 27%. I mean, in Game 5, Kyle Korver was the only other Cavalier to make even three shots from the field. They won that game, of course, so it worked, but I don't really know if that's sustainable unless LeBron is playing like uh, peak, peak, peak LeBron every single night. And that's what he needs to be because this season he played 82 games. He's Last last year they swept the first and second round, and this one could go seven depending on what happens tonight. It, it, to me, like the guy that needs to step up is Kevin Love. And you know, earlier this week, Kanye West tweeted, Love is the most powerful force in the universe. Nice. But that doesn't seem to be true anymore. It's just not. Kevin Love seems cooked. Charks, how, how can the Cavs bring Love back to life? I'm really not sure. I mean... Maybe if is George Hill going to play tonight? 
like they need another point guard out there who can like maybe get love open shots. But the tough thing is, it just seems like compared to Turner and Sabonis, he's just moving in slow motion. Even Thad Young shutting him down now too. It's it's sad. To, he's like a husk of a man right now. The way the whole team is. Does he need to put all the weight back on? Does he need to get bigger? Uh, I mean, that seems counterintuitive. Losing the weight and allowed him to increase his mobility, but but th- he's not that mobile still. So I see what you're saying because at least if he's bigger, he can like push guys around with his strength. But now it's like he's skinnier, but he doesn't move very well still. He's not that strong anymore. So he's like, what's he got going on? Is the old Kevin Love still there? Like, let's say, you know, LeBron leaves this summer and let's say Kevin Love's the guy again, like he was, you know, in Minnesota. Is that Kevin Love still there if they start running offense through him? I miss the old Kevin Love. The high post Kevin Love. Feed me elbow passes, oh. Kevin Love. Oh. <laughs> that was good. Yeah, very good. Very uh, good. <laughs> I mean, I, th- I think the, the issue with that question is even when Kevin Love was at his best in Minnesota, that team wasn't close to a playoff contender. Yeah. And now if you're questioning whether Love can even get back there, and I'm not sure he can, mm. yes, the East is easier than the West was when Love was in Minnesota, but where does that leave Cleveland? In, in a way, it's... It's, it's almost like it doesn't matter if he can get back. It's like, how can the Cavaliers right now get more from Kevin Love in order to advance in the playoffs, depending on if they face Toronto or Washington? Toronto would be an incredibly difficult matchup for them. And then in the Eastern Conference Finals, and maybe against a Sixers team that's thriving. Uh, to me, we're at the point where LeBron is LeBron, and he, he we saw in that Game 5, this entire series, this entire season, for that matter, LeBron James is still essentially at his peak with his ability to put his team on his back. Um, but everything else in that roster, in or, if they're not going to get sweeps like they have in the past, I, I, I think we're at the point where it's not enough to say Cleveland is the favorite because they have LeBron James. There needs to be more, and it needs to come from LeBron James. Like, Charles, wh- what can Cleveland do, though, to get more from Love? Right now, he's just kind of a bit player for them. Yeah, it's tough. You know, watching this series, like, it reminds me, do you remember the end of the San Antonio series when they won, and Chris Bosh didn't score in Game 7? It, sometimes it feels like maybe it's harder to play with LeBron than we realize. Because, like, LeBron is so good, he just kind of, like, swallows up the gravity on the team. And the ball doesn't move, and everyone just kind of watches LeBron. <laughs> like it's weird because like you want him to almost de-emphasize LeBron, but you can't do that because you don't trust these guys. To me, like if Toronto gets that second round, that's going to be a tough matchup for Cleveland. Yeah, and, and conversely, on the other side of the series, I think while at least LeBron has been playing well, Indiana's star has not. No. Uh, Victor Oladipo has really been struggling ever since the first couple of games of the series. In Game 5, he shot 2 of 15. Now, maybe it should have been 3 for 15 if that last play <laughs> was called a gold hen, but he is turning the ball over. He's missing three-pointers. And can he get right in Game 6? I think if he doesn't, maybe these questions are moot because Cleveland's just going to advance anyway. He's 12 for 50 over his last three games, taking a lot of careless shots. I'm not sure if this is just a slump. He, you know, he, He's had situations like this in the past. Um, during the regular season, he started off fast and he had a slump mid-year, and then he kind of really to elevate his game towards the end of the season. Maybe, who knows? Maybe this series will be a microcosm of his regular season. Started fast, got slow, finishes fast. Well, to me, it reminds me a lot of like the Portland series. Pretty much Everson has started blitzing the pick yeah, and roll, bingo. getting the ball out of his hands, and the Indiana guys really can't make plays. In game five, it seemed like they said no more pick and rolls with Old Depot ISO, and he really struggled, struggled ISOs getting shots. To me, the two guys to watch, I'm curious to see, is uh, Sabonis and Turner. They're kind of maybe their best scores outside of Old Depot, but can they play together? Can they get those two young big men going? I think that's those are the two guys to watch in game six for me. 
Yeah, in game five, yes, Miles Turner was in foul trouble, but he only took four shots, got to the line twice. If those numbers recur again, I'm not sure if Indiana is able to match up with Cleveland on the scoreboard because the issue is Turner and Sabonis might be better than Cleveland's bigs, but if they're not able to access them and tap into that advantage, then all of a sudden you're matching up Oladipo versus LeBron, and that's a losing proposition. And that's one of the, you know, you mentioned earlier, Charks, how Cleveland started, you know, really trapping Oladipo and pick and rolls to get the ball out of his hands. We saw Indiana figure out a little bit of ways to, I I think, um, attack that um, by getting the ball to Sabonis around the free throw line. He had an open jumper towards the end of the game. Um, But that's been a trend throughout, really, the entire playoffs. We saw it in New Orleans versus Portland, and we also saw saw that in Game 5 with Oklahoma City versus Utah. Oklahoma City obviously had their tremendous, tremendous third quarter storming back from a 20-plus point deficit um, to come back. Russell Westbrook, Paul George, outstanding. But... There was also another change in that game where in the second half, Oklahoma City started switching screens rather than hedging and blitzing against Ricky Rubio and Donovan Mitchell, um, which stagnated Utah's offense, I think really threw them out of their rhythm. Um, Charks, how did that adjustment take until game five to happen? That's like what blew my mind is like they kept for like three or four games are like doubling Ricky Rubio off the screen. Like that's exactly what he wants you to do. Like don't. Like, I want to make Rubio beat me. Maybe even make Gobert beat me as a scorer. Don't, don't just let those guys run, like, motion offense, get open threes for, like, Ingles and Donovan Mitchell. So, like, that was... I couldn't believe until Game 5 would do it. And I remember, so, two years ago, it was a uh, Mavs Thunder in the first round. So, I got to talk to Billy Donovan a lot. And, like, Billy Donovan's a really nice guy. We're talking. And, like, he has a great job of, like, saying a lot of things, not saying anything at all. Like, he'll, he'll give you a really detailed answer. If you look at it, it's like, oh, I didn't say anything. And so we're asking about like Russell Westbrook and he gives this really long spiel. You go back, look at it. It's basically like he does whatever he wants. I don't really talk to him too much. And pretty much I'm just here to manage the rest of the team. And Russ does Russ. So I don't really know how much Billy Donovan can even control on this team, honestly. I think that's my concern for game six. Zach, um, where Russell Westbrook is going to be Russell Westbrook. We saw the the highs of that in Game 5 where he just 45 points, 17 of 39. And I know it's not a super efficient game, but it throw the numbers away. He he was fantastic, and especially in that second half, as was Paul George. But sometimes you don't get that version of Russell Westbrook. You get the bad version where those shots just don't happen to fall in, whereas Utah, you know, as good as Oklahoma City's defense was, they still got some open opportunities. Yeah, I think you mentioned earlier that the Pacers-Cavaliers game was the one you were most excited for. I think it's this one for me tonight, just because it's potentially such an inflection point for this franchise. If they lose tonight and... Westbrook misses 20 shots and they go down by 25 and don't come back. I don't know if Paul George returns. That could create ripple effects across the whole league. So it's a matter of, like, do those long shots fall tonight? If so, like, Clay Thompson making those crazy long shots a couple years ago against the Thunder indirectly led to Kevin Durant leaving for Golden State. I'm not saying (laughs) Paul George is that kind of talent, but it's kind of funny that we spend all this time talking about movements and transactions and what players and teams are trying to strategize for. And it just comes down to like, if a guy makes some open shots, then a player will stay. And if not, he'll leave. And that's the funny thing, Zach, because look, if Oklahoma City manages the storm back, if if they if things just start to click these last two games, if they win three in a row to storm back from three and one, and they go into a series against Houston, and somehow they upset the Rockets, 
it's a completely different conversation heading into the summer because at that point, even if they were to lose in the Western Conference Finals, it's like maybe they figured it out and making some some little tweaks over the offseason, whether it's to rotations, whether it's to playing style, adding guys, whatever. Maybe Paul George looks at it and like, is like, hey, you know what? Why not spend another season here? Because with Jeremy Grant on the floor, we're way better than we Ooh. are with Carmelo Anthony. Maybe they I come back that realization. Say, that's what I'm watching in game six is like, how how much leash does Melo have? Because he's been just horrible this whole awesome. series. It's it's pretty sad to watch, honestly. It's depressing because Carmelo Anthony, look, I mean, he's a career 34% three-point shooter, um, but he's always been very good off the catch, especially, um, I mean, look, that was really what I thought was going to be great for him in Oklahoma City. He's going to be a knockdown guy, 40-plus percent from three, but he's shooting 21% from three in the series, I believe around 19% on Spot up, and some of those trees, they like they look horrible, like they he's, brick bad. He's wide open on a lot of them. And, I mean, part of me wonders if he's in his own head. Maybe he's had a couple of instances uh, the last month or so where he's missed two free throws in a row, and that's just you know single instances. But something is just completely off with him right now, and, and they, they need more from Carmelo Anthony, even if it's him playing a, a reserve role. And if Jeremy Grant is elevated because his cutting, his screening, his versatile defense, his energy, his rebounding is better than Melo, they still need Carmelo Anthony to offer something, Zach. Yeah. On the other hand, though, I think it's really easy to criticize the Thunder. Billy Donovan doesn't have a sophisticated enough offense. Russell Westbrook is making mistakes. Carmelo Anthony is washed. But on the other hand, I think this series and a couple other series in this playoffs have shown that defense still matters. It's not like Oklahoma City is playing poorly in a vacuum. Utah is certainly helping them along that road. And this leads into something that we were talking about the other night while watching the games. I know this isn't a typical draft class episode, but (laughs) it leads into what is one of the key discussion points at the top of this year's draft. Because we say we're in the pace and space era, but the space part of that is a lot more important. Uh, an NBA court has a fixed area, and the best teams are the best at manipulating that. Whether it's the Thunder, or whether it's the Rockets surrounding James Harden with shooters to widen their available space, or in the playoffs, the Pelicans and Jazz have been so successful because they've constricted it on defense. The floor is smaller and more crowded when you have Anthony Davis and Rudy Gobert, and that makes plays designed to create five on four and four on three advantages. They don't work when one of the ostensibly outmanned defenders can defuse two threats by himself. So uh, that manifests in the numbers too. Damian Lillard averaged just .39 points per possession Ooh, as a pick-and-roll nice ball that. handler in the first round against the Pelicans. That efficiency would have ranked dead last among <sighs> high-usage pick-and-roll guys in the regular season. And against the Jazz, Russell Westbrook hasn't been much better. He's at .6 points per possession in the pick-and-roll, and that would have placed him in the bottom five in the regular mm. season behind guys like Lonzo Ball and Michael Carter-Williams. Ooh, MCW, that's not good Yeah, that's not where in. you want to yeah. be. And <laughs> part of that is maybe Westbrook being out of control a little times, but also Westbrook, for all of his faults, he never hesitates when he has the ball. Gobert has made him hesitate multiple times throughout the series when he rubs off a pick and he's so used to having either Steven Adams to lob to or a clear lane to the hoop. And Rudy Gobert is long and big and springy enough to be able to cordon both of those routes off by himself. And that leads into the draft because the player I'm most interested in this year is Mo Bamba because he is, I mean, Gobert is his obvious comp for a reason. And he's a potentially transformative defensive player. He can manipulate the gravity on the floor and Make a player like Westbrook or Lillard abandon what he does best on offense. So, I don't know. I think the playoffs have shown 
more than we already knew, the modern NBA is a battle for space, and Bamba can help win that fight. Ooh, I like that. Hmm. I <laughs> think well the said. thing to watch with uh, with Gobert, because like Russ kind of plays into his strengths because Russ really can't shoot threes. So Gobert gets to stay like two feet farther back and we wall off the rim. So if they get to the next round, that's going to be really where the, the tale is told. Can Gobert go out those extra two feet and guard hard at the three-point line? And that's the thing that he doesn't do in the series in Oklahoma City. I think that's where I think Gobert and Davis get separated a bit because Davis has the extra burst of speed to really guard the three-point line. Uh, yeah, of course, Davis is probably the best draft prospect of the last decade, maybe since LeBron James even. Mm. So it's it's silly to say like, oh, this guy in the 2018 draft could have a, <laughs> have an impact like Davis on the end. And also, you know, it took Davis five years to tap into that potential. But I think when you're looking at the top of the draft and looking at what the NBA might be in five years, given current trends, there are so many gifted guards right now who can, you know, Westbrook aside, maybe they can all pull up from three and zip to the basket and deke out defenders in the pick and roll. So, yes, it's important to find such a player. But if you're looking for someone who might be able to make an all NBA team, what does that look like for a big man in five years is a really interesting question. It's funny because when Zach and I chatted about this the other day, my question to him was, does Damian Lillard struggles in the playoffs, you know, influence your opinion on a guy like Trey Young? Trey Young isn't even quite as big as Damian Lillard, but he's still an undersized guy, really skinny, struggles defensively. But Lillard is Hmm. one of the better scoring point guards in the NBA, and that's what people hope Trey Young is. And yet, even in that series, they still managed to limit him by trapping him, by, you know, having the big man, or rather, or actually it was... Miritich a lot of the time, but with Davis roaming in the back, um, really just waves of defenders coming at him, taking the ball out of Lillard's hands. They were able to neutralize him. So would that mean anything for Trey Young? And Zach's response was like, well, you know, maybe not. But he looked at it from the other angle where it's like, well, if Bamba or Jaron Jackson or even a DeAndre Ayton or Marvin Bagley were to turn into a high-level defensive player, maybe it's that type of guy that you need in order to neutralize those elite scoring point guards, not necessarily maybe as much as having an elite defensive guard to contain him. It's more about the big man or the wings, the other guys that help against those players. Okay, let me let me flip this a bit too. Okay. Because I think that's a really good point about Dame. But to me, what it shows is like, you've got to have that 4-3 guy who can make a four-on-three play. Because to me, like Dame almost did his job. If you're the guard and you get doubled off the screen, that's all you can do is pass the ball. Same with Oladipo. You have to have that 3-4 guy who can catch the ball, shoot it, put it on the floor, make the extra pass, the Draymond Green type. And that's why, to me, like Luka is so fascinating because you can't trap a Luka pick and roll because he's going to pop out 4-3, and three, shoot or dribble it. That's why, like, for Dallas, I want to go Dennis and Luka Doncic pick and roll. That's, like, my dream scenario. And what's fun about the top of this year's draft and why it's so fascinating is there aren't many players who are going to be pigeonholed as one-way guys. Like, Bagley certainly isn't as good a defender as Mo Bamba, but he's not Jaleel Okafor. So all these players can play both ways, potentially. Bamba can shoot, which is something Gobert doesn't bring to the table. And I think it does increase the both variability, but also potential success of a lot of these guys, because... A two-way player is the most valuable asset you can have, and there's a chance there are a half dozen of them in the draft. Jonathan, if you don't move Mo Bamba up your rankings after hearing Zach Cram talk about the impact he could potentially have, I don't know what to tell you, man. Get him move him up. I feel like Mo, like in theory, is that guy. I'm just not sure that, like in practice, like if Mo was like what Mo is supposed to be, he's super valuable. 
I'm just not sure he's like that fast. I worry about Mo's perimeter mobility a lot. And then the jumper with Mo, <laughs> I don't really buy that either. Though he had those nine threes in that little uh, Draft Express video. It reminds me, I remember when Willie Cauley-Stein was knocking down threes before the draft and they were like, oh my God, Willie Cauley-Stein stretched big. I think the lesson here is every team should find an Anthony Davis and Draymond Green and then they'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> pretty simple, pretty simple. We'll be talking more draft in the coming weeks. Um, I'm excited about Mo Bob. I'm also excited about chain shooting mechanics. And we'll talk about that in the future, but first we have to take a break. Today's Ring NBA show is brought to you by the Google Assistant. With the Google Assistant, you can complete over a million actions on your phone, in your car, and around the house. One of my favorites is to play podcasts when I'm in the car and can't be messing around with my phone. I just say, hey, Google, play the latest Bill Simmons podcast. Download the Google Assistant today. Today's Ring NBA show is also brought to you by Hotel Tonight. If you're the type that's always looking for a bigger, better deal, you've got to get the Hotel Tonight app. Hotel Tonight partners with awesome hotels to help them sell their unsold rooms, which means you get amazing deals. Their name is Hotel Tonight, but you can actually book in advance. Book next week, tonight, or book next month, tonight. All it takes is 10 seconds, just three taps and a swipe. No long, endless list of zillion hotel choices. Hotel Tonight only shows you the best deals at the best hotels. Perfect whether you're a planner or like to leave things to the very last minute. And with Hotel Tonight's HT Perks program, the more you book, the better deals you get. Unlike other loyalty programs where you're trapped into staying at boring chain hotels. I've used Hotel Tonight, and it's great for spontaneous weekend getaways or a staycation at a hotel you've always wanted to stay at. So start scoring amazing deals at incredible hotels and download the Hotel Tonight app now. And now, back to the show. We're back. We're going to talk about the remaining Game 6 tonight. Toronto versus Washington. Um, Toronto won Game 5. It was one of those games where it felt fairly evenly matched. Like, this, mostly this entire series has. Um, now that we're back in Washington, um, I think this could certainly go seven games. Charks, you had, you had a big piece today on TheRinger.com about John Wall and Russell Westbrook. Unfortunately, I haven't had time to read it yet today. I'm sorry. Um, so can you sum oh. it up for me? <laughs> yeah, Kevin just be eating my pieces, but it's okay. That's why I'm here to summarize for him. <laughs> Uh, no, the basic gist of it, I thought it was really interesting. So I looked at like the top five guys in touches and time of possession in the playoffs. It's Wall, Westbrook, Simmons, LeBron, Harden. And to me, like Wall and Westbrook really stood out as like this type of player. You've got a smaller guard, not a great shooter, has to have the ball in his hands. And I just wonder if there's like a very a, a pretty low ceiling on the team with a player like that because with Wall and Westbrook, when they're off the ball, they're pretty much useless. I mean, especially Wall. Wall is literally on his hands holding his knees. And to me, it's like, you'd rather have a guy like that, like Drew Holiday, who plays a small role in offense, but can go- play defense at a high level. But the way Wall and Westbrook play, it seems like there's a ceiling on their team because they have to have the ball. They can't really shoot. And like the ball doesn't really move that much because when they're off the ball, teams don't guard them. Yeah, supporting that, a couple months ago, Zach Lowe wrote a piece about John Wall potentially making the All-Star team and wrote that, according to Second Spectrum, John Wall spent you know 77% of his time on the floor either standing still or walking, which is the largest share among all rotation players. Second worst was Dirk Nowitzki at that point. Mm. And Dirk Nowitzki nice. uh, can't really move, <laughs> so there's a reason for that. And I, I don't think that stat is the end-all be-all. Sometimes... I, like, I don't think James Harden rates very well by that set because know. he's very efficient in conserving his movement. But I think it does support what Charks is saying that, especially on offense, 
you want a guy at least making an effort sometimes to move around, confuse the defense a bit. Yeah, and the difference is like when Harden's standing still, he's still a threat because he can shoot so well. But like with yeah. Westbrook and Wall, when they're off the ball, no one really guards them. So they have to have it. And then you flip that with like Ben Simmons. He's like, when he's off the ball, he can't do anything either. But for him, driving to the rim is not like super stressful because he's so big. Whereas I think Westbrook and Wall have to use so much energy attacking the rim that they don't have much energy left for anything else on the floor. I mean, that that to me is what's really frustrating with watching the Wizards. Um, uh, for John Wall, I mean, he played 44 minutes in Game 5. He came back with like eight games left in the regular season. He's probably not at full strength right now either in terms of his basketball conditioning either. I, I can't imagine it's easy to play 44 minutes on the road in Toronto in a high-intensity game when you only came back a couple of weeks ago. Um, so it's partially that, in addition to the fact that he's just never been a guy who moves in the first place. Um, and it's not going to change. It's not going to they're not going to flip a switch overnight ahead of game six and Wall is going to start cutting and hitting spot-up threes at over 40%. It's just not going to happen. So it, for Washington, it needs to come from somewhere else on their team. I do think Wall has been pretty good this series. He's averaging 27 points, 12 assists. He's outplaying Kyle Lowry. The issue is just the Wizards haven't been a good defensive team at all. Uh, Every pick that Valanciunas sets is basically leading to a layup or open three-pointer. He's been great. The Raptors have been averaging about 1.5 points per possession when Valanciunas sets a pick for one of the guards, which is just an outrageous number. If that continues in Game 6... This series is over. And the Wizards have been sort of lackadaisical on defense, not just this season, but for years now. And they always say, we'll turn it up in the playoffs. And they're tantalizing with their potential. They win games. They look great for long stretches. And then they give up a 9-0 run because they give a leak out in transition and then an easy dunk on a pick and roll and then an open three-pointer. And then all of a sudden their lead is gone. Nothing has changed, which simultaneously makes them a fascinating team but also one of the least interesting teams to talk about because what do you say about the Wizards at this point that hasn't been said already over this entire John Wall, Bradley Beal era? <laughs> Whereas with Toronto, Jonathan, they're getting con- new contributions from guys, perhaps the national fans who have never watched the Raptors this year have never seen before. Someone like DeLon Wright really had a tremendous Game 5 as part of a, a great overall series for him. Um they're having difference makers step up each game um, off of their bench or or guys like Jonas Valanciunas who are making a difference with their screening, which doesn't necessarily show up in the box score, but they're getting it from a lot of guys on their team. Yeah, and the two guys to watch, I think, going forward for them is uh, my guy, my large adult son, OG Ananobi, OG. and then Pascal Siakam. Where'd you have him ranked last year, just for context for the listeners? Oh, yeah. So I I was like OG all the way. I had him like number four on my yes. board because that's my son. That's and dude. I think those are the two guys to watch because they'll have to guard LeBron James. They'll have to guard like Ben Simmons or Giannis or Jalen Brown. Like if Toronto is going to be a better team, going to be a bigger, more dangerous threat, they've never really had good wing defenders. And now they had these two 6A, just athletic freaks, switching screens, really strong too for young guys, pretty smart players. Can they make threes? I mean, they're going to have to guard LeBron James in the next round, most likely. So those names will be very important for Toronto if they're going to have a chance to beat Cleveland. Yeah, Wright and Ananobi are a great example of why depth actually still matters. Yes, playoff rotation shortened, and the Raptors' great bench in the regular season might not translate perfectly to the playoffs, but Washington needed to play John Wall 
for every second of the second half of game five. They only played six guys at least 20 minutes. You're saying Ty Lawson can't pick it up They're relying on (laughs) Ty Lawson and... They're getting guys from China, man. Literally flew in from China for this. (laughs) Yeah, like Markeith Morris shot two of eight in game five. They have so few reliable players they can count on that if any one of them has an off shooting night, it really limits their possibility to match Toronto, who can go eight, nine, ten deep. I get the impression from hearing both you guys talk about the series that you think Toronto probably closes this out, closes the series out tonight. Definitely not, because again, mm. the, the Wizards' thing oh. to do is to win tonight <laughs> and then have a lead like by six points heading into the fourth quarter of Game Seven, Ooh. and then the bench completely <laughs> gives it up. That'd be like the perfect Scott Brooks Washington Wizards thing to happen. That's How about you, funny. Jonathan? Yeah, I th- I think like as much as I just bashed on Wall, I think he has a big game tonight. Brings it back to Game Seven, really? and then the Wizards. I like I like Zach's prediction. The Wizards' depth in the end cost interesting. All this talk up about the Raptors and how they are getting contributions from the bench and how the Wizards are getting nothing. It's like, well, you know, maybe John Wall's a big game, and sometimes that honestly is just really the difference. Of all the analysis on all the podcasts and all the articles, sometimes really it's just guys have big games. I think Raptors close it out tonight. Um, I think series is actually, in fact, I think all the teams that are up three two probably close it out tonight. I think Cleveland takes care of business. I think Utah um, really comes back, especially at home. I think Toronto closes out as well. What about the other two series, Zach? Do you have any predictions for those? Yeah, I think Cleveland probably closes it out tonight uh, just because I'm kind of worried about the Pacers shooting the last couple games. And if that doesn't return, then Cleveland's going to win. And I think Utah wins. So my prediction is that Toronto-Washington goes Game 7, but the other two end tonight. I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with home court. I'll I'll just say so. Utah closes it. Let me get two game sevens. I love it. I'm down for game seven. Moving on to Golden State, New Orleans game one happening Saturday night. New Orleans obviously had their outstanding sweep over the Portland Trailblazers in the opening round, and then Golden State. We'll see if Stephen Curry comes back. Steve Kerr said yesterday that Stephen Curry practiced fully and he's questionable for game one. Obviously, that would be a significant difference for Golden State. But let's assume that the Warriors hold him out as a precaution in game one. Um, let's say he just misses the entire series as a whole. Uh, who is who is the best series? Who is the best player in this series, Zach? Just to throw it back to the opening conversation we had with regards to Giannis being the best player in the Boston-Milwaukee series. I think that's why Golden State-New Orleans is going to be the most interesting series of the second round because I don't know the answer to that question, whether it's Kevin Durant or Anthony Davis. I don't think Steph Curry will be just because even if he returns, he'll be somewhat compromised with his injury. That's what happened a couple of years ago when they eventually lost to Cleveland in the finals uh, when he missed a couple games. And Anthony Davis has been playing so well He's averaging 32, 33 points a game in the playoffs, which is second only to LeBron. Uh, Justin Verrier uh, from The Ringer had a great piece on the Pelicans this morning on the website just talking about how they've really evolved and they experimented with the two-big lineup, but now that they've been forced to go sort of with this more motley crew around him, Davis has been just playing so well as the center. It's been maximizing his strengths and... The matchups in the series, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a moment, are really interesting. Who guards whom on each end? And like, does Davis guard Durant? Does Durant guard Davis? Who does Draymond guard? It's a really interesting set of questions. I mean, yeah, that's the question. It's like, how much AD versus KD do we get in this series? How many, like, how much seven foot on seven foot crime is happening? Well, what New Orleans did during the regular season was they had Drew Holiday 
on Kevin Durant, which certainly seems like quite a mismatch in favor of Golden State. Um, and if Steph were to return, naturally you would think that you would have to put Drew Holiday on Stephen Curry. But then again, you also have to defend Clay Thompson. It, it, it's, to me, Portland Portland um, was the perfect opponent for New Orleans to go against in the first round. And vice versa, New Orleans was probably the toughest opponent possible um, for Portland. Um, whereas in this series... Everything that New Orleans did in the first round against Portland, they were really trapping pick and rolls against Dame and CJ McCollum. Um, I don't know if you can do that against Golden State because, first of all, they don't run as many pick and rolls. Second of all, Kevin Durant, I don't know who defends him on the Pelicans aside from Anthony Davis. But if you put AD on him, you can't have him in that roaming role that he had in the first round where he was just in every action. Everything Portland did, Anthony Davis was there. But you can't do that if he's on KD. Uh, I'm I'm more intrigued by anything else about how they're going to match up in Game One. Sharks, do you, do you have any any sense of what they should do um, based on their personnel? I mean, do they have to even change the starting lineup for that matter and pull Etwan Moore, put him on the bench because otherwise you're just outmatched in terms of size. That's tough. I wonder if they'll just say like I'm thinking they might put Rondo on Draymond and just because like hide dare Draymond to yeah dare Draymond to score. And at Draymond screens, Rondo just switches it. And I kind of think maybe you put Drew on, on Holiday, on, on Clay, and like say Durant's going to get 40, we're going to guard everybody else. Could you, could you just put AD on Draymond, though, and still keep him in that, ro- in that role where he's roaming? Or are you saying put AD on KD? Yeah, I mean, I think you're almost going to have to because I think the Golden State bigs are going to have the series pretty fast. Like, I don't think you'll see much of Kavon Looney. Maybe you'll need to see Jordan Bell, but... Those those bigs have no one to guard for New Orleans. I think they'll play off a series by almost the end of game one. And the interesting thing is, conversely, Zach, I, I feel like Golden State has a handful of guys that they can throw at Anthony Davis. I mean, up and down their roster, whether it's Kevin Durant, whether it's Draymond Green, or a little bit of a smaller guy like Andre Iguodala, or a little bit of a bigger guy, like if they do put Kevon Looney in the game, they have a handful of guys on their roster that they can at least put on Anthony Davis. Stopping him is one thing, but I think they can at least make things hard for him with four to five defenders on their t- on their roster. Yeah, and the other issue that New Orleans has in that comparison is if one of Golden State's players gets in foul trouble, it's not the end of the world. If Draymond Green is guarding Davis and picks up two early fouls, you still have Durant and Clay Thompson to run the offense. Yeah. If Anthony Davis guards Durant for the entire game, there's a not insignificant chance he picks up a lot of early fouls. And New Orleans offense is, you know, Drew Holiday's been playing great. We have playoff Rondo, but their offense is still 10 points per 100 possessions worse without Davis in the playoffs. And they just don't have the firepower to keep up with Golden State's offense with Davis out. It's you know it's almost like Golden State is the best team in the league for the last four <laughs> years for a reason. But I, I do think if Steph doesn't return, that New Orleans has a chance in this series, at least to extend it to a game six or seven. And that's just because even if Curry only returns at 75%, say, he's still such a threat off the ball that... Even a compromised version of Curry is so much better than like Andre Iguodala or Sean Livingston running the point. And that's not a slight at Iguodala at all. Of course not. It's just an assessment of how important Curry it, is. To it's the, a compliment to, to Steph. Yeah, Golden State's offense, it just looks more crisp when he's in. They've been running a lot more isolations with Durant, which is fine. Durant might be the best isolation player in the league, but it just isn't as fluid. It doesn't give them as many outs if the first option, do, if the first option breaks down. But when Curry's in, any... Like when Curry's in, anything someone like Draymond Green provides on offense is a luxury. 
But with Curry out, you need Draymond to actually be contributing. If I'm Golden State, I'm ho- I'm holding Steph out for the first two games. And if you're up 2-0, maybe you still bring him back for game three just to get him in a rhythm, you know, ahead of a potential Western Conference final series against the Rockets. Um, uh, would, would you bring him back, Charks, or, or are you holding him out until uh, he actually absolutely needs to return um, to win a game for them? I read a good article by uh, Marcus Thompson at The Athletic. He had a good theory about that. And he was basically saying, you don't want to bring him back in game one because at least then you have it in reserve if you lose game one. Then you bring him back for game two to get to uh, split the series at home. Like My guess is it'll be if he's ready to go, they'll hold him back for game one and bring him in game two. Let's wrap this up. Um, Charks, Zach, do you guys have any predictions for this series? Does New Orleans have a shot of upsetting the Golden State Warriors? Yes, but it's not going to happen. But the very fact that I think there's a possibility speaks both to how kind of sketchy Golden State's win over the Spurs is and just how impressive the Pelicans have looked. Yeah, I mean, if Steph doesn't play, that's like the million, that's like the billion dollar question, right? How much is Steph going to play? How healthy is he going to be? It feels like he's going to be healthy enough that Golden State will be able to pull it off, but who knows? I'm not a doctor. Uh, <laughs> I think New Orleans steals one because of an outrageous Anthony Davis plus Drew Holiday combination game. Isaac, you have some grades for us? I do every single week, and today I'm going to start with you, Kevin O'Connor. Oh uh, you had some great analysis today. However, you made a Kanye West reference earlier, the thought of which made me very, very sad. And for that alone, you get a D plus. Okay, thank you. Jonathan Charks, you know, people around me have been telling me to cool it on being a stickler on pronunciation, but I refuse. You pronounce Thon McCurr as Maker. Again, it is Thon McCurr. I hope that you fix that for next time, especially as I made a note in our rundown for you guys to pronounce that correctly, (laughs) uh, which you promptly ignored. However, I would like to say that your I Love Kanye parody redeemed Kevin's downer of a mention. So I think that raises your grade up to a B. Oh, here we go. And last but not least, our esteemed guest, Zach Cram. Fantastic job in your Ringer NBA show debut. Uh, Really, really enjoyed having you here. Full disclosure, you are an invaluable part of the Binge Mode team, and I'm going to be relying on your research and fact-checking for all of Binge Mode Harry Potter, which is going to be a massive project. So with that in mind, I'm going to give you an O for Outstanding. Wow. I didn't realize I was taking my owls today. Thank you. If you're a Harry Potter fan, you got that reference. And you missed your Avengers Showtime, right? So we got to give you some credit for that. It's okay. Harry Potter better than the MCU. Wow. Great take. <laughs> a take that I agree with, by the way. Isaac, even though you gave me a D plus, you still get an A plus for your A plus producing. Thank oh, you, wow. Isaac. Now I feel bad. Mm-hmm. It's okay. Kevin O'Connor, teacher's pet. Well, that was fun, guys. But it's all we have time for today, unfortunately. Jonathan, thank you for phoning in from Dallas. As always, it's fun, guys. Isaac, thanks you for being the GOAT producer. Uh, I don't think GOAT is the is the correct adjective to describe my producing, but I appreciate that nevertheless. Well, that's fine. Zach, did you have fun today? I did, and now I'm uh, off to the Cineplex to watch. Yes. And I'll come back with a Thanos scatting report for you, Charks. Okay, absolutely. Stretch five, go. like you said, John. Well, thank you so much for joining the Surge, Zach. From here in beautiful Los Angeles, thank you so much for listening to The Ringer NBA Show. Please rate The Ringer NBA Show five stars on iTunes. Give it a thumbs up on YouTube. Give it a like wherever you listen to your podcast. For extra credit, please check out The Ringer's 2018 NBA Draft Guide at nbadraft.theringer.com. Special shout out to my friend and the biggest NBA fan I know, Elon Musk, for his support and for promising to build a winning NBA roster around Giannis Antetokounmpo this offseason. Really appreciate that, Elon. 
We'll try to get Elon on the show next week. Thank you so much for listening again. Have fun. Peace out. <laughs>